Hi, welcome back to a Trafficking Free America podcast. My name is Jeremy, and I'm going to be hosting this episode. Today, we're going to continue our deeper dive into our Advocate series. Today, we're actually going to be talking about episode four. And uh, unlike our other three episodes where we've actually had a guest that is involved in the uh, video of Advocate, uh, today we're actually going to be talking to someone that you have not met yet. Her name is Becca Charleston. If you want to know more about Becca, you can go to BeccaSpeaksOut.com and actually learn about her story and her journey. But uh, to give you a little bit of a brief, um, uh, she was trafficked basically from the age of 17 to 27, uh, something along those lines, give or take a few years. And um, she, uh, she was uh, basically trafficked through the brothels of Nevada. Um, she has a very interesting story. And, um, and, and what's, um, she, what's great about this deeper dive is that, is that she gives some insights into the mindset of someone currently in trafficking, currently in prostitution. And it's actually insights that I've never heard about or, or heard of or, or discussed. And, and it gave me a lot of education just through this one interview alone. Again, I, I, if I mentioned in the last episode, I've been kind of in this for six years and I'm still learning stuff every day. But um, this one was a, a big one. Um, it talks about like how the media and the world are currently trying to help um, defend um, uh, prostitution and sex work and making it legal and stuff like that by ultimately, uh, doing a new mindset that manipulates in many ways, women and, um, and, and also manipulates men into thinking that this is okay. Um, it, it's a, it's a powerful, um, discussion that, uh, Becca and I have. And, uh, she, I, I, I think you're going to really enjoy hearing, um, this insight to help you better understand. Uh, if you're in the middle of Advocate series, if you're watching, if you've watched episode four, um, this is uh, so, uh, funny. I think this has been the biggest um, impactful episode as far as the feedback we've gotten. Everyone said four is our favorite because it truly shows someone being affected by um, uh, you know, an, an individual. Um, if, in episode four, you hear Brandy's story about how she was basically told to start helping combat human trafficking after her sister was trafficked and, um, and, and becoming educated and ultimately grabbing the mindset first. And then God created an opportunity for her to actually affect. She's affected many lives, but we talk about one particular one and it was a prostitute. And if she wasn't educated or just ready in that moment, we don't know where Brooke would be today. Brooke, it's her story inside episode four. And so as we hear, hear about that story and how, and how God restores and ultimately how um, God has called us to, um, <laughs> you know, uh, witness and love on people that honestly are, are feeling hopeless. And, and, and sometimes we're told like, oh, avoid these people. Um, you know, Francis talks about how, you know, if you actually love um, these people, eventually they'll learn to love me, love Jesus. They'll actually love Jesus more than you do. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a, I'm not going to get into remake the episode for you. I really want you to make sure, I want to make sure you're watching episode four of Advocate Series, which you can find at advocateseries.com and download for free. Um, and if you have already watched it, you're going to enjoy this extra insight. If you've watched it and you're like, uh, your heart's being stirred, this is really good education for you to listen to. So um, take some time, listen to this whole thing from Becca, and um, I hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into our interview with Becca. All right, Becca, thank you so much for uh, being part of this uh, podcast, uh, part of this episode. 
Um, we're going to be talking about episode four of Advocate today. And um, but before we get started, I really want to introduce you to everybody, um, like why we're possibly talking with you and um, and what your um, experience has been in the fight to combat human trafficking and, 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 and multiple things that you do. So uh, go ahead and introduce what you do and everything along those lines. Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on here. Um, I am a survivor, a lived experience expert, as some call it. I was trafficked for about 10 years that began as a runaway in the state of Texas and ultimately wasn't able to get away until the federal authorities finally became involved. Um, I was able to eventually get out and rebuild my life, um, but it was hard. It was really hard. Um, today, I um, founded the Charleston Law Center last year, and that's the work that I do today. We provide pro bono legal services to survivors of sexual and domestic violence across the state of Nevada. Mm, that's awesome. And, and now, when I first actually heard about you, um, you were doing a campaign um, uh, to ultimately uh, raise awareness that uh, prostitution in uh, specifically Nevada is just like it basically is human trafficking or it, it is a, um, it's a, it's, it's causing a lot more harm than they, than they tried to campaign that it, it was like helping with sex work and stuff like that. Like I'm just, before we get into some of this, I'm curious about some of your experience in that and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. So um, that video campaign that you're mentioning, the Nevada is not safe video um, that came out of, um, I actually, tried to hold the state of Nevada accountable. So I sued the state of Nevada, the governor mm. and its legislature to try to end legalized prostitution in Nevada because I was actually trafficked through the legal system of brothels in Nevada. Mm. And I think a lot of people, a lot of citizens don't that, that aren't nuanced on this issue and don't really understand. A lot of people think it's safer and healthier if you legalize prostitution. And the reality is, is that it's, it's, it's neither legal, it's neither safe or healthier. Um, like I said, I was actually trafficked in the brothels. And so I can speak directly to the harms that take place inside that you have to, you're forced to sleep in the same rooms that you serve as customers in. The mm -hmm. house takes 50% of your money off the top and then charges you rent and room and board and food on top of that. You're not allowed to leave the premises while you're working at the brothel. You know, there's all kinds of just terrible treatment that takes place inside there. And, and what happens in a legal system is the city officials and the governor and the legislature, they all become de facto pimps because they're all profiting off the backs of people that are being exploited. And so um, I was that, that's where that campaign actually came from. Um, yeah. Ultimately, that, that lawsuit, I'm sorry, that lawsuit wasn't successful. We made it all the way up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And now um, there's been a new lawsuit refiled with other victims uh, that are survivors that want to hold Nevada accountable as well. I'm just curious, like what, what is the defense of the state? If they're, if this is a legal thing that they're letting happen or are they, I'm curious, is there a defense like, Oh, w that's not legal. They did that illegally through our legal system of, you know, like what is the, uh, it's really interesting, you know, because any organization that applies for uh, grant funding through the state or through the federal government, you have to sign that you do not support legal prostitution. And so the very state of Nevada that applies for grant funds from the federal government has to sign that statement as well, that they don't support legal prostitution, yet there's still laws on the books that allow legal prostitution to take place in seven counties. In addition to the Las Vegas market that 
if you've ever been to Las Vegas, we're all aware what happens. It, it's under the guise of an escort service. And those are allowed to operate legally. And supposedly, right, it's just companionship and people just want to look the other way. But we all know what's happening in those rooms, right? Um, it, it's commercial sex taking place. And often it's human trafficking, actually. And so it's interesting because there's this attitude, especially in rural Nevada, that, oh, as long as they're adults, they're consenting, nobody really cares. And the truth of the matter is, is most of those people are there by force, fraud, and coercion, or out of dire circumstance, right? Maybe that when you look at research on prostituted people across the world, uh, the overwhelming majority of them have been sexually assaulted as children. They come from homeless, poverty, right? I mean, horrible life circumstances got them there. And now we look at them and we say, well, this is all you're worth. Like, as long as you say and you act like it's your choice, then that's fine for you. And I believe that it's not fine for anyone, right? I believe we all were born with inherent dignity and value and worth and that we bodies are not commodities. Um, you say now that you were trafficked. Uh, dur during the time, would you say that you were, do you feel like um, in that moment in time, did you, did you, would you say like I was being trafficked at that time and I knew I was being trafficked or would you say like, I was a prostitute. Like what, what was the terminology that kind of you were using at that time? No, I definitely, I, it took me a full two years after being trafficked for 10 years to actually realize and say, Oh wow. Right. And I'll, I'll get to that story of how that happened in a minute. But while I was being trafficked, no, I knew I was in the game, right? I knew I was in the life, you know, that's what, that's what we called it. I knew I was in prostitution and I knew I had a pimp but I still thought it was my choice. Even though when I met him, I was 17 and he was 37 and he manipulated and abused me and coerced me, right? Sold me a, a bill of goods that as a vulnerable kid that was living on the street and you know homeless and stealing food in order to eat every day, it sounded really good that he was gonna give me a place to live and we were gonna be this team. We were gonna make money together. And obviously that was never right the case. He was just exploiting everything he could get out of all of us. Yeah, why don't you share your story a little bit? Uh, help, let's let's help the audience understand like where where your experience came from a little bit as as yeah someone who was coerced and kind of didn't even think about it until yeah two years later, which is I'm sure the audience is already feeling this after after the the four episodes that they've watched of like people don't think they're trafficked when they're being trafficked, you know? Like I think we're getting that idea that's going on here, and um, yeah, so go ahead and share. Like, yeah, what was, what was going on? So, I mean, I actually am the youngest of six kids. I came from a good family. I was raised going to church in the Dallas area. Um, and I had some vulnerability factors hit though. In my childhood, I had a brother commit suicide. Um, I was uh, sexually assaulted for the first time in the fifth grade. I um, was bullied really bad as well that same year. I wound up getting raped when I was in the seventh grade at a church lock-in of all places. And so I had all these things happening to me. And what I know today is that rules without relationship equals rebellion. And that's exactly what happened for me. Um, my parents were very authoritarian. You live under our roof. You go by our rules. And yeah, there's sex don't have it. And yeah, there's drugs don't do them. And that was really a large extent of the conversation. You know, we didn't, we didn't really talk about difficult things, you know, and I felt very isolated as a kid. I felt really depressed, obviously experiencing those kind of traumas and and really having no one to talk to about it because I thought I would get in trouble if I told anyone. 
you know, and unfortunately, if we don't build deep relationships and have hard conversations with our kids, then we have no idea what's going on in their lives. And that's exactly what happened. And so I wound up, you know, running away from home at the age of 17. And um, I, you know, it wasn't long until I met the first guy who seemed like he was going to let me stay with him. You know, like I said, I was, I was homeless, you know, just bouncing around. I was a high school dropout. I couldn't get a job. And, you know, he told me I could live with him. And he, you know, the first day was great. We went to his house and he was telling me all of his dreams. He was an aspiring musician and he just needed to get in the studio and record that hit single. And then we'd get it on the radio and we'd all be rich and famous. And, you know, that honestly, back then, my life goals were to have like a gold tooth on my canine right here <laughs> with a diamond on it. <laughs> and I'm very, you know, this 16 year old girl, right, that I'm talking about, 17 year old girl is very different from the woman I am today. And, and so what he was selling to me, I was buying, right? That, that dream of being rich and famous and being on the radio. And it wasn't until the second day that I would realize what his dreams were going to cost me in the form of my dignity and my body. And he told me to get in the car with the other two girls and they would show me the ropes. And I, I didn't ask a lot of questions, you know, living that kind of lifestyle questions get you outcast questions, get you killed. They make you seem like you're going to be a snitch when, when I desperately wanted to belong. And so I didn't ask any questions. And I found myself in the backseat of a car on Harry Hines Boulevard, which is the track or the blade, a known area of prostitution in Dallas, Texas, being told exactly how to ask people to have sex with me and exactly how much money I had to charge them. And it was like, you know, my whole world flipped upside down on top of me. Like I wasn't prepared for that. You know, I had, I was in an area of town that I'd never been to before. It's a really bad, scary area of town at as well. And I thought that if I ran, that I'd probably get raped and murdered and chopped up in little pieces and no one would ever find my body and know what happened to me. So you didn't want to be doing it at that time, but it was the, it was the fear that something could happen to you if you didn't comply that it was, it wasn't where you actually threatened of those things or you just kind of like this could, so I'm not even going to take a chance. No, it was two other women that were controlling me at that point. The pimp wasn't actually there. That's my first trafficker. The pimp wasn't actually there, but it, I just, in, I knew like, if I don't do what they're telling me, the outcome is going to be even worse for me. Mm. Right. And so, yeah. and so I just stayed and did what they told me. If, if I did try to do anything different or change the script of what they wanted me to say, then I would get in trouble. I had to shower last. I had to eat last. I had to do everything last. Cause I was the last one to come around. But honestly, after the first day, you know, I, I mean, I'll also note, I, I know in one of the the videos everybody watched that, um, you know, my survivor sister Ori talked about, you know, traffickers always use this same saying. They say, you're already doing it for free. You might as well get paid for it, right? And that that statement is designed to shame promiscuous kids, but it gives you this illusion, this idea that somehow by making people pay you for your body is you taking your power back. And that illusion is how you get up every single day and look at yourself in the mirror and put on your makeup and go out and do it all over again, even though you're miserable and you're laying on your back doing unspeakable things for people that you would never even look at in general public, right? You know, and, but it gave you this idea that somehow this is your choice and that this is how you can take your power back by, by, by being exploited. Um, you know, when in reality, the, the traffickers always have all the power as do the sex buyers, right? It, they're the ones that are profiting and, and getting pleasure out of those experiences. 
what, what are how just in your experience in this i'm i'm curious if you know your your 100 opinion are women being exploited in our culture through that idea of it like they're exploiting the word empowerment like is that what's going on i mean i definitely think so i think you you believe this lie that somehow, you know, if, if you're making a lot of money or I know a lot of people that are pro full decrim or pro legalization of sex work. And most of those people are still in sex work. And so it, it's my opinion that most of them are still under that guise that, that influence that, you know, that it is empowering somehow. And, you know, when I've debated several public sex workers and I just debated one at a, um, really liberal, liberal university in Portland, Oregon. And, um, you know, even current sex workers can't deny the inherent violence in prostitution, yet they argue that if you legalize it, that somehow it wouldn't be violent anymore. And that's just not the truth. You cannot legislate or legalize the violence out of prostitution because when it, it's a power and control dynamic, right? It's one person has power and money, and they're going to use that power and money to use and uh, use and discard another person, right? In prostitution, you're paid to not be human. You're paid to not have emotions. You're paid to not talk. You're paid to leave and never call again, right? Now, maybe you have regular customers, right? There's those exceptions. But for the most part, you're paid to not be human. I mean, when someone, when someone pays you for their body to perform a service for them, for your body, you know, that you cease to be a human to them. Now you're just a product that's going to be used and discarded. And that means that you've been dehumanized, which means that's why sex workers, I'm sorry, sex buyers are so violent because you're, you're not even a human to them. You know, if the experience is too quick, then they either want to rape you again, or they maybe want to rob you and take their money back. Right. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in violent situations with very normal grown men that probably are married and have families. And yet they're treating me like I'm not even human because I'm a prostitute in that situation. And so I think it takes a lot of time and healing. It takes separation from getting out of the sex trade to actually look back at your experiences and process what's happened to you. Because while you're still there, you're still believing those lies, right? That you're you have power and that, you know, all those different things. But usually more often than not, once you get out and you actually are able to get some healing and some therapy for the things that you've been through and the traumas that you've experienced, that narrative changes quite a bit. Something that I've been noticing in media lately, um, even with like some new documentaries that have come out or, um, you know, oftentimes more of a liberal type of uh, media, sure. But um, it seems to be like they're trying to grow that idea of empowerment for women, like you were just talking about. But in the process, though, they're trying to shame a buyer who treats them badly. Not someone who buys, just, hey, we need to respect this work that they're doing, right? Calling it work. Um, And so I'm starting to feel this idea, like, if we make the buyers good people who buy sex, then everything's going to be fine. Have you felt that type of, and and how should we respond to that? Yeah. I mean, I think, 
you know, even calling sex buyers Johns, John is a euphemism, you know, John gives you this idea of it's just your everyday guy, you know, sex buyer. And I think for far too long, our culture has accepted this kind of locker room talk where women are objects, you know, most often women, obviously, we all know that, you know, boys and, and men can be bought and sold as well. Um, but the vast majority is going to be, you know, female. And, you know, it gives you this idea, you know, even saying, like I said, John, that, oh, it's just your regular guy. When in reality, I mean, I can guarantee, no, when when you look at men, like not all men buy sex, you know, the, actually, when you see the studies on buyers, they're across every race and every economic category, right? Every um, uh, income, right? Every income, every race, um, when you look at them, there's high frequency buyers though. And they look at like about a third of the sex buyers are high frequency and make up. Right. And, and those men aren't normal, right? Those men, when you see documentaries that interview sex buyers, like that, they, they have completely different lives. You know, most, many of them have successful jobs. They have wives and, you know, a wife and a family, and then they're sneaking out during their work day and purchasing sex from a prostitute and, and then going back home, like, like nothing has happened. You know, I think for many men, it does become an addiction. You know, it becomes a very addictive lifestyle that they, you know, are kind of escapating and they think they're getting away with it when all they're really doing is hurting themselves, right? They're hurting the person they're purchasing, but also their own families. Um, there's a, a really great documentary that just came out that has about six different sex buyers that are interviewed. And um, it's, it's really sad to hear how far their addiction went. Um, one of them was actually on the verge of sexually assaulting someone outside of a 24-hour fitness gym. Um, and be because, and it's funny too, Jeremy, because I think, you know, when you hear sex buyers that are actually open and transparent about why, what motivated their behavior, it's really a hatred for women. That's what it, it really is at the core of it is that they want women that they can't talk to normally and they have found that they can use money, a coercive tool in order to get those women. But there's this embedded hatred of women actually in their behavior. Mm -hmm. um, I think we need to have a lot more studies done on that, honestly. Well, that, 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 is an, that is like good insight. I mean, because uh, I, I can see that. And uh, like what – like. Uh, I, I hear you there, that, that hatred is feeling, but like, what is fueling the idea of someone buying sex? Like we've heard how uh, first it's pornography and then you start wanting to get more of it. Is it pornography? Is it this cultural mindset that it is okay that maybe you're actually helping somebody? Like what is, what is fueling buyer mentality right now? I, I think a lot of it is, is porn addiction. I mean, I think almost all sex buyers report, you know, once they're caught, um, that they did, they were, you know, exposed to pornography at an extremely young age and that it, it is that, um, my words are failing me right now that where you, you can, you're not getting as much as you used to, right. Kind of like a drug addiction, mm -hmm. you know, you're always chasing what that initial high, that initial feeling felt like, which means you're doing more and more to try to get there because what used to work last year isn't working this year. And mm -hmm. a lot of times that does progress from, from watching porn into actual actually buying humans. You mentioned before about empowerment and that 
that that they 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 kind of grab you with that lie, and that's how you wake up in the morning to continue. Um, and we'll 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 kind of put our uh, you back in the in in time of like when you were being trafficked at the time you considered yourself as as a prostitute or possibly even maybe defended yourself as a sex worker is like were you were you almost like drinking the kool-aid in a sense during that time and defending sex work at that time exactly yeah i think you know initially obviously there's shock you know for me like after that first act it i felt like how could i ever be normal again you know how could i ever look at my mom and dad in the face and tell them what's happening to me I was ashamed, you know, and that shame kept me trapped. But then on top of that, right, you layer in the abject violence, right, that I was facing. You know, if my trafficker, I I became so attuned to his disposition that he had me so organized that I could hear one word from him on the phone. And I instantly knew like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Did I leave the toothpaste out? Did I not dust under the lampshade? Like, what is it? Because I can tell as soon as I see him, he's going to beat the living mess out of me. And so you have, you know, constant violence, but then also the coercion that I mentioned, you know, uh, you know, for my second trafficker, who was a much more professional pimp, he'd been a pimp 20 years before I ever met him. You know, I, after two months and my, with my first trafficker, I thought I was running away. And unfortunately I ran into the arms of another man who would abuse me and exploit me all over the country for that next 10 years of my life. And so he was, like I said, a much more professional pimp. And he always sold us this, right? There's always some pie in the sky, you know, some dream of a different reality. It's never that you're going to have to do this all the time. It's, hey, you know, they, they basically pimp a dream for you. And for my second trafficker, he had legitimate, I'll say legitimate in air quotes, businesses because he was just money laundering through them. But I mean, ranging from a pizza restaurant to a clothing line to a custom dog bed company, to a men's designer clothing line, you know, and that was always the dream. It was that this is what you can do for now, and this is how you contribute. But then we'll get this other business up and going, and then then you know we could just work at the business, and you won't have to do this anymore. You know, there's always some dream that's sold. So you layer in right the abuse, you layer in the coercion, and then that the fraud. I mean, obviously, all of that was a lie. You know, I mean, I did work in those legitimate businesses, but I was never going to be able to get out. You know, when you have victims bringing you thousands of dollars a day in cash, there's not many businesses that are going to replace that, you know, and with our trafficker, you know, of course he could never hire other people. That's, that's another thing traffickers do is they isolate you. So I was only allowed to talk to other people that were in the game. I had to lie any other squares, right? We kept squares out of our business. So it had this really normalizing effect. I remember when I went to federal prison for my second trafficker, and it was the first time that I was kind of around other people. And I remember I had to get a job after I got out of prison. I had three years of supervised release, which is federal parole. And um, when I had that job, it was like, I remember having this thought like, wow, everybody doesn't live this way. And it it was novel to me because it, I had been, become so accustomed to the life and to the game that that was just normal for me. That, you know, our, you know, traffickers, have you listened to pimp music? Have you watched pimp movies? Um, you know, everything that just normalizes the life. And, you know, once you start getting a criminal record while you're being trafficked or exploited, your chances just dwindle of ever be, having hope for a future, Right. 
that doesn't revolve around your body being sold of, of thinking that you could ever be able to do anything different. When you watched, um, uh, the episode and we heard, um, Brooke's story, do you felt like you related to her, um, uh, on, on obviously like, you know, I'm obviously related to her, but you know what I mean? Like uh, what, I know for a fact that there are plenty of people that see her as that, that I, and church church members that would see her as a victim, but also a victim of her own choices. Mm-hmm. How often did you feel connected to that mentality of and alone? You know, that's the hard thing. Victim blaming is is nothing new in our society. You know, I mean, Unfortunately, yeah. of course we've seen, you know, cases of sexual assault. Well, the first question is what were you wearing? Right. And, you know, we've, we've seen even, you know, judges in courtrooms say, you know, that your jeans were too tight and, you know, that that's essentially why you got raped. And I, I think a lot of times, you know, the people that wind up getting trafficked and I'm talking specifically more pimp controlled trafficking, obviously there's a, there's 25 different types of trafficking. Familial trafficking is completely different and looks totally different. Um, where you have, you know, mom or dad or aunt or uncle or grandma selling young child, usually to feed their own drug drug addiction. But with with pimp control trafficking, you know, typically victims have come. They they have all those vulnerability factors like we talk about. You know, I I love um, there's a, the Life Story Initiative, and they talk about on ramps. And the on ramps that lead you to exploitation, and while maybe I did make some hard headed choices, you know, and, and just like Brooke as well, you know, because there was traumas that I was experiencing, and I was acting out with my behavior, right? I mean, I truly believe that there's no such thing as a bad kid. That there there are kids that are experiencing things, and they act out those those behavior signs of truancy, of stealing, right? The, those little behavior signs are are a, a warning an indicator that something's going on in that child's life. And those are the kids that we need to be running after, right? Not not shipping away to girls' homes, not locking up in juvenile, because all that does is it put you directly on the path to exploitation. And so while I'm sure that, you know, there's maybe things, maybe choices that that we made, right, that put us in situations but that doesn't mean that we deserved right what happened to us, right? That doesn't mean that we asked for what happened to us. Of course, you not. know those, those those things were were done to us and perpetrated mm-hmm. to us. So, you know, I, I, from some of the responses I've seen in our screenings um, before we have launched this um, series, is is a lot of people through episode three. Like actually, uh, it was someone who's watching episode four in the middle of it, and uh, when Francis Chan actually started, he said, "So is prostitute human trafficking." literally like out loud, the person said, I was waiting for this because it is such a, I mean, I think for someone who's not really involved in the modern day trafficking, who there is a separation between it. Like, what did you think trafficking was when, while you were being uh, trafficked? I, I just thought it was prostitution. Yeah. I'd never, never heard the word trafficking before. You even hear the word trafficking. Like you didn't even think of it as like a foreign thing. You just straight up didn't, didn't even know what trafficking existed. Right. I mean, when you think about the TVPA was passed in 2000, but when I was first trafficked, it started in 1999 all the way to 2009. And so when I, even during the federal case, human trafficking wasn't exi- didn't exist really. You know, they called it a prostitution ring is what they called it. And so that they were trying to prove. And because none of us would talk, 
right? Then we all took the charges and served time. There was not a lot of awareness, especially for training, you know, for law enforcement agencies and things like that. Today, thankfully, there is a lot more awareness and a lot more yeah. people understand that. But I never heard that word until after I got out. Is awareness be, uh, becoming a saturated thing, though? I think we could do a lot better job. You know, I think um, sometimes the stories that wind up getting told are those really horrific stories, um, you know, of, you know, someone being kidnapped or, or things like that, which that does happen. And that's obviously mm. horrendous. But what happens more often, right, and in America is that it looks like your boyfriend, right? It looks like someone coming alongside you and offering you a safe place to stay and a hot meal. Maybe you're a, run a runaway at the bus station and there's a trafficker waiting there. And of course, he doesn't introduce himself that way, right? Mm -hmm. He would instead say something like, hey, are you, you know, you're pretty cute. You want to go get some fries at McDonald's? Like that's how easily it can start. Let's talk about, you mentioned in your past of the first time you were raped was ironically at... Um, a lock-in at church. Just curious, did you like grow up in church? Like, what, 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 why were you in that? Why were you at that lock-in? Yeah, I, I was really active still at that point in my life in my church. I remember going to church camps. I remember being filled with the Holy Spirit at one of them at a, like a revival. Um, and I, I was a really, honestly, a good kid for the most part. I was an AB student. I was a cheerleader. I was a soccer player. Uh, I was involved in my church. I had, I was really part of the in crowd. I was one of the cool kids. Um, yeah, I, I, I would not your typical victim. I, I did want to say something to what you mm -hmm. said a second ago, Jeremy, uh, it just came back to me was, mm -hmm. um, that I think, um, a lot of people, the people that promote sex work, right. The sex, sex worker lobby, as we would call it. Um, you know, when you look at people that actually have choices and actually choose prostitution, most often it's white women from advantaged backgrounds. But when you look at the reality of the sex trade across the entire world, but really specifically here in the United States, what we see in prostitution most often is disproportionately uh, disproportionate rates of African-American women, right? Of, of black and brown women and girls that are being trafficked and they come from horrible life circumstances. And so I think, you know, while there may be some people that really do have choices and really choose prostitution, I can never advocate for creating laws and systems that, that benefit those few privileged ones when the vast majority are disadvantaged, marginalized, disenfranchised people. I think, do you think the church is ignoring that kind of factor? Like, oh, this is America, a land of opportunity. Everyone's got one. Yeah, I think a lot of times they are a lot of times they don't want to have these conversations you know like i mentioned with my own childhood you know people don't want to talk about sex work and prostitution inside the church and if you're not talking about it that means it's probably a problem in your congregation i can guarantee you just statistically there's sex buyers in your congregation there's people that have been raped and traumatized in your congregation and if you're not talking about it then those people aren't getting help something that um we're preparing for in this series is possibly um, you know, maybe motivate, maybe you can call it motivation for someone to speak out, um, or maybe, uh, hearing st other stories and realizing, oh my gosh, I was traffic, you know, as, as, yeah. uh, we heard from Savannah's story in episode three, um, you know, how should, how should we all respond as parents that, you know, as 
if you're, a, I feel like I, I need to say uh, preference this by saying, if you're a parent who all of a sudden hears that your child was molested or in, or abused in any kind of way by somebody, um, and they've wanted to keep it a secret because I, I know I know someone specifically that they never wanted, they still have not shared ever to their parents because they don't want their parents to feel like it's their fault. They don't want to feel have their parents shame, but um, but also being silent about it is that the best thing? I don't think so. You know, so it's like, what what do we do about this to make sure that we all we all have the safe place to say something and have a way to best respond when it comes to parents, church leadership, mentors, so and so. What what's your opinion on the best way to to do that? Well, I mean, I think. Definitely. When, when you have these conversations, there's, there's really not, I, I train five to 10,000 people a year across the country, you know, on this topic. And almost every time in every audience, someone comes up to me and tells, and they disclose their own past history that either was trafficking or they, they felt like, oh my gosh, this situation happened and I was able to get away. But I'm, I know that if I didn't, this could have happened to me. And, and so what I would say is, you know, when you start having these conversations, you're right, people are going to come forward and maybe be more willing when they hear people being vulnerable, right? And that they're met with grace and compassion, um, that, that gives them an idea maybe that they can come forward as well. The first thing I would say is believe them. You know, I think it's way too often, far too common that children do try to say something to a caregiver, to either a parent or a grandparent. And they are told that, no, that didn't happen. That couldn't have happened. And they're shamed into silence. And um, I think that is just, it almost makes me want to cry. You know, it's so frustrating that, you know, some people do try to say something and then they're, they're quieted because people don't want the drama, right? People don't want to break up families. People don't want to believe that their husband or partner may potentially be sexually hurting their children, you know, but statistically speaking, it is very common. And so uh, number one is to say, I would I believe them, but we all have something that we can do. You know, we all have time, talent, or treasure, right? We can all, you know, get involved in organizations and we can volunteer, right? If we don't have treasure or talent, right, then we can give our time and we can help. You know, we don't all need to run out and start our own organizations, right? There's organizations out here that are doing really good work. And so do a little research, Google it and find organizations in your area and, and go volunteer and learn more, right? The other thing you can do is obviously give money, you know, obviously to those organizations. Um, you know, there's, there's never enough funding, right? That's always a challenge for nonprofits that are doing the good work of serving exploited and vulnerable people. But you also have talent potentially, you know, I think there's been a lot of focus in the field of anti-human trafficking on uh, the recovery or rescue, right? Getting getting the people out, and then that restoration, that first one to three years. You know, we've 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 done a lot of good work, and there are good restoration homes. There's there's not enough, but but we're we're making progress in that area. But we're what, and then a lot of times what happens is that we just wash our hands and then we're done. And well, we gave them a safe place to stay for two years. They met Jesus, and now life should be great for you. Mm. And, you know, that's just not reality, right? When you've experienced decades of exploitation and abuse and you've been, you know, under strict information control, you know, like I was where 
we only listened to other pimp stuff, you know, and that was so normalized. I didn't learn how to use Microsoft Word, right? I didn't use email, right? Those are all things that I had to learn after I got out. But mm -hmm. what we don't have a lot of is economic empowerment opportunities. You know, I think there's a lot of organizations that are teaching survivors how to work, you know, make leather handbags or, you know, make jewelry. And all those things are great because it gives a, a great place for survivors to learn you know, how to, how to do different types of work in a safe mm. environment where they can learn how to have healthy relationships with authority, um, you know, and, and all those things. But when you get out of that program, you're not necessarily going to get a job making leather handbags, right? Yeah, There's not yeah. a lot of jobs out there for that <laughs> or, or making jewelry, you know, that that's not really a sustainable living wage income. And so what we don't see a lot of is that, that economic empowerment where you're actually being paired and, and hopefully it's a, a career that's entirely outside of the anti-trafficking field. And one of my best friends, Rebecca Bender, is famous for saying, you know, surviving a fire doesn't make you an arson expert, you know, and that and that's so true because just surviving being exploited doesn't mean you should become a public speaker, right? Sure. Doesn't mean that you need to work in the anti-trafficking field. For many people, it's too triggering to, to, to do this type of work. And mm -hmm. so- we need pathways to be created that are completely outside the field. So all that to say, you have talent, you have businesses, maybe you could be a safe employer and, and give a survivor a second chance and an opportunity, even if they have a criminal record, you know, maybe you do taxes. Well, maybe you could go and do taxes for survivors for free. I mean, there's ways that you can give back even through your own company and business. So I think we all have to play a part, but we also have to start those conversations at home. We have to talk to our young boys and our girls. They have to understand, you know, their own dignity and value and worth, but also other people's, especially other people that don't look like them. You know, we need to, to tell them, but also, you know, teaching them about their own bodily autonomy and having those conversations where they know a lot of people use, you know, euphemisms, I guess, or nicknames, right, for private parts, right, for your, for your private parts as, for children and and, um, you know, a lot of researchers and, and leaders, thought leaders in the field say that's don't do that. You know, you actually need to call it exactly what it is. Right. Mm -hmm. That way, if if an abuser does try to talk to the child, right, that they that they know that they're not. We need to be the ones educating our children. So we know that we're teaching them the right way. And if we're not educating them, then that means they're going to be learning it from friends or from someone else that we don't know their intentions. And so it's really important that we start those conversations with our kids age appropriately um, at, at home. You know, uh, one of the uh, services that you provide is a law services um, and you do it for free for, for uh, victims. Uh, talk, talk to me about that. Maybe I don't think people really understand like what's needed legally in, the, in, in many ways. Yeah, so our legal services that we provide to victims of human trafficking, sexual assault, or domestic violence, we kind of bucket them into three different categories. So we have what we call crisis legal services, which is usually really early on in a survivor's journey, usually immediately after they're getting out. Um, a lot of times that includes law enforcement intervention. Uh, sometimes we'll be a courtroom advocate for a survivor that's going through a trial. Um, we uh, help with you know family law with CPS type issues. Um, traffickers often and abusers often impregnate their victims to then use the children as pawns and control the mother by controlling the child. And so 
There's a lot of family law issues we help with, um, protective orders, you know, for domestic violence victims and human trafficking victims. And then the next bucket is going to be restoration legal services. And so that looks like usually a survivor is um, on their healing journey at that point. They're out of crisis and maybe they're in a restoration home or they're, you know, on their own two feet and they're ready to start getting their record cleared. Or maybe their their survivor or abuser, I'm sorry, their trafficker or abuser put a lot of debt in their name. So getting that debt cleared out of their name. Uh, it could look like family reunification. You know, there's other various things in the restoration bucket. And then on the far end, we have accountability legal services. And that's when a survivor is well into their healing journey and they're at a place where they're finally ready to hold bad actors accountable for what happened to them. And that may look like civilly suing a trafficker. It may look like, you know, suing a hotel that was complicit in their trafficking, uh, various other things, you know, holding people accountable for what happened to them. But beyond that, we also help survivor leaders in the field. Um, you know, everybody benefits from having access to an attorney, especially pro bono one. And so we want to be there really along the survivor's entire journey. You know, farther along in their journey, they may need help negotiating a severance package from an employer. You know, they may need help because somebody wants to make a documentary documentary and buy the life rights to their story. Well, we would help them look at that contract and make sure that their best interests, mm-hmm. you know, are, are looked out for. And so honestly, we offer a, a big variety of legal services and there's a huge need. You know, in our first year of launching, we've already served about 60 victims um, and they're, you know, survivors, of course, but across across the spectrum of different legal services. As I mentioned, family law was probably one of the biggest ones. I know you talked about fundraising before, and a lot of people don't think of fundraising as this. Um, you know, but how much does that cost? One, give me an idea of like one case, you know, I know they're all different, but like get, how much is that costing? Uh, it can vary, right? Depending on the legal services, like for instance, for record vacature in the state of Nevada, the legal filing fee for that is going to be $400 just for the filing fee. But beyond that, obviously the attorney's time. And so when a, one of our lead attorneys might charge $500 an hour, well, how many hours is it going to take? I mean, we're easily thousands of dollars you know, per, per client, per legal services, especially when you think about family law. Those are really time intense. Um, obviously, there's a lot of fighting usually back and forth, a lot of different court visits. Um, so e- each legal service is different. Um, and thankfully, we have access to a lot of pro bono attorneys that are willing to do it, you know, obviously for free. Um, but we still have those filing fees that we have to have to find fundraising and support for as well. Now, you are you are a survivor that clearly has a lot of talent in public speaking and helping raise awareness and and offering legal service, a lot of practical things. Um, I'm I've I have never asked somebody this um, in, in all of my interviews. I'm curious if you were going to describe a perfect world that you believe would actually end trafficking. What would it be? I mean, I think we have to. Honestly, to end trafficking, we have to address a lot of other systems of injustice and abuse that take place. You know, uh, our foster care system, for one. I mean, there's kids that age out of foster care that literally don't have identification, have never learned how to drive, and are are just left on their own. That they had a foster group home that maybe was just collecting a check and, and not actually helping the kids at all. So, I mean, we have to address that system, right? We have to look at 
poverty, right? We have to look at domestic violence. You know, oftentimes trafficking is born out of domestic violence, right? Um, so I think we would have to address a lot of big systemic issues in our society. And I think it is a really lofty goal, but it, I think people are worth it. You know, that I think that, it, you know, there's a lot of, it, it's worth it to try, you know, to address those systems, you know, obviously uh, racial discrimination, you know, that's another big issue that overlaps a ton with human trafficking and prostitution. You know, you're actually paid based on the race of your skin while you're being prostituted. You know, certain races are paid more than others. And so that means those other races have to do two to three times the amount of work, right, to make the mm -hmm. same amount of money for their trafficker. And so, um, yeah, I think that's, that's And that that's also gives you an idea of recruitment, right? You know, yeah, that, that I mean... I've often felt this, and I hope that by this time, um, someone's watching uh, this series that they kind of get this idea of like, oh, human trafficking is not some really evil guy thought it would be a good idea to like sell sell children and stuff like that. You know, lock if I can get them all locked up, blah blah. It, it's 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 not even like just pimping and prostitution. It is a core thing of we have ignored sexual abuse. We have ignored neglect and lack of family. And we have given it to, in many ways, anyone other than the church yeah. to deal with it. And on top of that, the church has probably defended the, their establishment way more than we ever should have to keep the evil brand out rather mm -hmm. than Satan truly. It's, I think it's a cultural mind shift, mind shift that not only needs to happen in our nation around the world, but starting with the church, it starts with the church and, 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 and the, uh, the body of Christ to say, are we truly being Jesus right now? Are we truly carrying this out? Um, you know, and, and then start looking at now what's going on in the world as what's happening at home right now. And, that, and, and not just at home. I think that's another, I think that's a big reason why the church has ignored this is because they're like, if, if I just focus on my family and birth, you know, if I just focus on my family and, and then, then it'll change generations. While obviously you should be focused on your family in many ways to not ignore your family as you're helping others in your mission, you got to look in and look out, you know, and, and teaching your children that process too. Um, I think I've come to the grips that I probably in my lifetime will never see trafficking end. Yeah. But I'm ready to see a dent. Mm -hmm. And, and if we don't start thinking that way, how will ever, how will it ever end? Like as, as you've been watching this series uh, yourself, cause uh, you know, we, we met each other um, actually right after this was filmed. Um, I want to know how you have been feeling about this as someone who has had a traumatic experience in the church as someone who's had a traumatic um, life, uh, life and, and, and been trafficked and been prostituted and, and then come out realizing the truth and realizing what's going on and being, um, and I think now truly speaking empowerment into women um, in, a, in a truthful way. How, how are you feeling about this and, and how the church can, you know, listen and respond well? I mean... 
I'm, I'm encouraged, you know, I'm encouraged, obviously there's so many different pastors that are part of this series. And I know, you know, the whole reason behind the series is to engage the church. Um, I'm encouraged that churches are, are willing to have these conversations. Uh, you know, I mean, the world doesn't have restoration and redemption, right? Only Jesus does. And, you know, I, I think a lot of times we get comfortable and we are only around other people that are like us. And I think sometimes we have implicit bias that creeps in that we're not even really aware of. But I mean, the church is the one who should be right helping, right? The, the church should be the place that we run to when we're hurting, you know, but unfortunately for many people, it has been a place that has judged them, that's shamed them, that's told them they're not worthy you know, instead of being met with that grace and compassion. You know, I remember when I actually, the first time I went to church after I was being, after the game, I, I had just moved back home. I'd driven 16 hours straight through from Las Vegas to Dallas, Fort Worth area at 30 years old. I went, moved back into my mom and dad's house. I was four months pregnant and had no clue who I was and what I was going to do with my life. And my sister came into the house and she, um, I had taken like a two hour nap after that long drive and my sister came in and she told me she was going to go to church. And I just kind of hopped up because I had this hopeful expectancy because when I got pregnant, I started feeling burdened to pray for the first time in a long time. And I was raised in a Southern Baptist church. So, you know, fire and brimstone pastors yelling till he's red in the face. Mm -hmm. And I truly thought as a child that if I wasn't doing everything right, then God didn't want to hear from me. Right. I, I grew up with that angry rules based God. And I didn't know a, a Jesus that actually was passionately pursuing a relationship with me. And and that was waiting for me to look to him the whole time, you know, that he loved me in my sin. You know, I, I didn't understand that. And so anyways, I went to church thinking, honestly, thinking I would be shunned because here I was pregnant. I didn't have a ring on my finger. But instead, I was met with this huge warm hug by this woman who told me all about Embrace Grace, which is a program that's in more than 500 churches across the country that helps single moms, right? pregnant moms. I mean, those are the programs we need to be having, right? We need to create the space that people come to for help. Mm. I'm going to end with this. Um, we talked a little about how traffickers and and, and really the world and, and, ma and many people are spreading this lie about empowerment. Like you said, like grabbing your power back that you're not going to take this for free. You're going to pay for it. Ha ha. And that um, is a terrible recruitment mindset. What can you say to women? That's the true empowerment that they should be thinking about. Gosh. I mean, while I was living that kind of life, I, I, my pimp always told me I'd be broke, fat, and ugly, and no one would ever love me if I ever tried to leave him or change my life. And, you know, I think when you've had traumas and negative things like that happen to you, it sends you this implicit message that it's you, that there's something wrong with you, and that you're the reason that those bad things happened. And, and the truth is, you're not, that those bad things happen to you because of those people, right? Those people had something going on with themselves and decide to to hurt and abuse you. And so I would say that there is hope, you know, that there is hope to get out and change. I never thought I would be able to have the life I have today. Um, God has restored so much to me that I never thought I would be able to do again. And 
um, that you have value and, and that don't let other people, abusive people dictate to you what your value is, that, um, there are safe people that you can find, you know, and safe people that are willing to help. Uh, that was really hard for me to accept too, was that other people I thought, you know, living that kind of lifestyle, that kind of criminal lifestyle, people just take whatever they can get from you. You get robbed all the time, strangled at gunpoint. I mean, all horrible experiences I've had. And it was really hard to accept help from people because accepting help requires vulnerability. And vulnerability is one of the hardest things to do when it meant victimization for you before. And so I just encourage you to find safe people that you can be vulnerable with and um, that I, I hope that you're able to, to find help and, and overcome. I know that was just, I said that was my last question, but I do have one more after you said some of that. It's sort of a twofold, like what did truly help you get out of that and get and start develop, it helped you develop the life you have now. And I, I don't want to make it sound like it was other people that did it. I know it was you and, 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 and Christ with you, but, um, and involved in that, um, what, what made those people, how did you know that those people made you feel safe versus how some people take advantage of that trust? Um, like for instance, obviously, you know, the church it, it, telling me all about Embrace Grace, which is a program that, you know, you go to a semester of classes and then they throw you a baby shower and give you everything that you need for your baby, mm. um, as a, as a single pregnant person, which that's amazing. They're meeting a tangible need and mm. through that need, they got to teach me about Jesus. Right. Mm. Mm. An another way I found safe people was I went to a nonprofit that was helping women that had been sexually exploited. And I remember thinking like, what? This little group of church ladies wants to help strippers. Like, yeah, right. You know, they're going to be all judgy. Like, how could they ever understand me? But when I got there, it was a free meal and they gave me a $10 gas card to show up, right? You have to meet the tangible need. Um, and, and that got me in the door. And then when I got in the door, I was met with the most kind, genuine embraces. They gave me a little gift bag that first night and it was nothing special, just like a book, a journal and some pens. Um, but I remember thinking like, you don't even know my last name or if I'm ever going to show up again and you're giving me things, you know, it was just the, those small things that meeting those tangible needs can have a profound impact on people. Right. And, and that it worked for me. I kept going, kept going to support group and showing up. So I think, I think when we meet people's tangible needs and we're there with them and we have to develop that no flinch factor, you know, because when people share their stories or hard things, if, if they see a visible change, right, on your face or in your body language, then I'm going to shut down and I'm not going to continue sharing because you've just showed me that you can't handle the depth of my story. Uh, and so it's really important that we meet those tangible needs and, yeah. man, we're genuine with people. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we're not shocked, you know, and visibly shocked. Like, of course, their story may be hard to hear, but they live through it. Right. And so the least we could do is sit there and be respectful and and let them share whatever when they're willing to. What's different about this series than other educational content? I promise this is my last question. Uh, what, what's different about this series that's different from other content that you maybe you've seen uh, on helping spread awareness and helping educate? What's different about this one? Well, I think you did a stellar job making it, number one, <laughs> you, you know, <laughs> Um I absolutely loved going back and watching all of them. Um, 
but also, I mean, I think what, what makes it different is the intended audience, right? I think what makes it difference, different is the different survivor stories, right? Because no two of them are the same. There's, there's a lot of similarities that exist, but it's really important that we hear other people's stories because it can look completely different. Um, so I think you guys did a, a really great job at that. Um, and like I said, that intended audience, the fact that you're making this to engage people that maybe have never heard about this issue before. And so I think you guys have done a really good job, you know, and, and I did want to say earlier, I think the biggest way we can actually make a dent is by addressing sex buying, right? Is by mm -hmm. actually reducing sex buying because the, the reality is prostitution and, and sex trafficking exist because there are people willing to purchase sex, mm -hmm. right? There's a demand for commercial sex mm -hmm. and, and there's never going to be enough willing women that want to be prostitutes to meet that demand. And that's why traffickers and pimps and brothel owners come in with the steady illegal supply of victims because there's money to be made. Yeah. So we can, uh, while victim care is extremely important, we should continue always doing that. Um, if we only focus on victim care and not, um, and, and even prevention at the end of the day, if someone's trying to buy, they will find a way to buy. Um, and you're exactly right. And, um, uh, I'll, I'll throw this little nugget in there. I know that we're taking, uh, well, av after this advocate series, I know we want our next approach is to focus on how do we change a culture that we look at as buying anyone is mm -hmm. as, as the most grotesque thing we could ever think of. And how can we change culture to truly think that? And, yeah. um, I think we can, it's done, been done before we think, I mean, we, I think I think you ask you ask any average person of like um so like we even a buyer would say I think it's grotesque that you would like chain someone to a to a door right obviously they exist but like a, a very extreme rare case you know what I mean and so it's how do we we have developed that mindset for anything and I know that that is our next approach and you know awesome. I, you know, Becca, I could like talk with you for like hours and I, I, I thank you so much for spending this much time with us and, and, and giving a lot more insight. And I know that what these podcasts are for is for viewers to get a little bit deeper after watching each episode and, and to just have this help develop a mindset around like, how can I do better? How can, what, how, how can I approach this a little bit better and ultimately um, be the hands and feet of Jesus in, in, in my community. So thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for being with us on the Trafficking Free America podcast and um, in the season two of uh, continuing and further discussion about our Advocate series. Um, if you have not heard of or do not know where to download our Advocate series, please go to advocateseries.com and you will find a link to ultimately access all the videos, download our study guide. All this is for free. And we also put some additional resources on that website so that you can, uh, as you deep dive into these episodes, you can uh, access our resources to kind of get a better idea on, on, on educating yourself, um, uh, getting some ideas on how you can get plugged into um, ultimately uh, combating human trafficking if you feel inspired or you feel God calling you to, to do more. The U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking created this advocate series to help educate the church so that they know a little bit better of an idea of how they can react in a Christ-centered way on combating human trafficking. And one of the action steps we give 
is to, is to actually become an abolitionist. When I say become an abolitionist, I mean by going to usiaht.org slash abolitionist and signing up to be an abolitionist. It's our abolitionist project. It is ultimately a way for you to subscribe and receive resources. Every time, on a daily basis, we're trying to create content and find more resources and more ways to um, rally and unite uh, the church together and others together to um, combat human trafficking. And by signing up as an abolitionist, you get resources right away from us to do that. But we also ask our abolitionists to get involved in one of three ways. It is to either uh, help raise awareness. That could be anything from sharing things on social media, just continuing, uh, continually, continually talking about this with your friends and family, uh, those who are uh, you can influence in your community, possibly even taking our TFC program, our TFZ trafficking free zone program, bringing that to businesses so that they can become TFZ zone uh, trafficking free zones. And uh, may or maybe taking this advocate series to churches or other any group you want to and, and helping raise awareness. Another way is to volunteer. If you want to volunteer, we have a program. We have several programs at the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking that you can actually um, uh, get involved in right away as a volunteer. But also, you know, this is a nationwide thing, and we are uh, continually partnering with other organizations such as safe homes, foster care agencies that are uh, in pregnancy centers, multiple places, multiple resources that are helping combat human trafficking or helping the marginalized that really affect, um, you know, those who are being groomed or brought into human trafficking. And so uh, if you are, if your heart is to volunteer, if you want to spend your time doing that, we want to help get you plugged in. So by signing up as an abolitionist, and if you want to volunteer, you can actually schedule a consultation meeting with our team at the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking to uh, help get plugged in in the right way, like where, where you're located, as well as your time, as well as your talents and skills and heart. We help try to partner you with the right, with the right organization to uh, to start start getting involved. And the third aspect is helping raise raise funds. Um, you know, even making this advocate series is thousands of dollars. Uh, creating content and helping raise awareness on a continual basis costs a lot of money. These organizations that we're going to help you help plug you into, everyone needs funds to help make this happen. Um, we are fighting a one hundred and fifty billion dollar industry. And if we're coming in with um, with uh, pennies compared to that, it's going to be a longer haul, right? It's going to be a harder fight, and and it's going to take longer, and there's going to be more victims. Um, money is definitely not power, but money is a natural resource to help those who are being marginalized. This entire thing started with money, and we can combat it with good. Um, if you have a talent for raising money, I want you to help us raise money. I want you to help fundraise, whether it's giving yourself, whether it's getting others rallied around this to give to the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking, or it's rallying around your local organization that you know is combating human trafficking and you can help them. Ultimately, we need you to um, help raise funds. Ignoring the fact that funds are a need is ignoring the fact that people are in need. These funds will help those people. And I want you to make sure, I want to make sure you're researching. And if you want to talk to the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking to help make sure you're choosing a good organization that's truly putting, you know, their money where their mouth is, um, that's another thing we're trying to help too. We're trying to weed out those who are doing good compared to those who are maybe just, you know, exploiting the fight against human trafficking, which is also real. So guys, um, 
Thank you for listening to, the, to today's podcast. Again, if you're ready to get involved after watching the Advocate series, I encourage you to go to usiaht.org slash abolitionist and actually sign up. Um, and if you have not watched this Advocate series, please go to advocateseries.com and download and watch this five video series and then go and sign up to become an abolitionist because I promise you, um, you're going to feel um, pulled the, into helping in any way possible. Thank you.